Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. designer? How about an illustrator or a photographer? This is Rainy Roberts and I wanted to tell you how you can get my designer, illustrator husband, Scotty Roberts, to work for you on your project. Do you have an awesome self-published book but no cover or even worse, a cover that really sucks? Do you need a kick-ass logo for your company or some f***ing awesome graphic designs for your ads or website? Then get in touch with my husband for the best f***ing awesome kick-ass design and illustration. He knows his stuff and he's been at this for more years than I've been alive. Go to scottallenroberts.com. That's Scott with two T's, A-L-A-N-R-O-B-E-R-T-S dot com to take a look at his online portfolio of work or call 651-468-8115. Now go out and kick some ass with some kick-ass graphic design. Hi, I'm my dad, so he can take me to Disneyland. Hey folks, welcome to the program. It is Monday night. Happy Monday. This is Scotty Roberts, your host, and this, of course, is the Intrepid Radio Program right here on the Odyssey Radio Network. That's O-D-Y-S-Y Radio.com. Uh, this show also simulcasts in video in three places over on Facebook. That's uh, my page, uh, Odyssey's page, and uh, Intrepid Radio's page. And also then over on my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Scotty Roberts. So come on over. Uh, you can watch us. Join the chat room over there live where the whole family of Intrepids is starting to filter in. And you can uh, make some good friends there, good family there right now for many of us who've been doing this for years. And it's good to see everybody over there tonight. And uh, um, like the broadcast. Give it a thumbs up. Helps the algorithms over on my page. And uh, subscribe if you're not subscribed. And also hit the little join button down below the screen. Uh, It'll show you three ways to become a member of this channel beyond a step beyond subscription so thank you all for being here i was going to talk about and still am 
um, a very little-known character in the biblical text. And she's a, a character that comes from the Deuto, uh, Deuto Chronica. I, I don't have the word in front of me. But it's uh, uh, one of those books that's considered by some to be fake, that's considered by others to be canon uh, and truthful, and uh, considered by others to have a whole list of things that prove that it is a copy of something else going on in Scripture. And you will find this book in the, uh, you won't find it in the Jewish Bible, you'll find it in other, uh, other sources, the Apocrypha for one, some uh, Judeo-Christian Bibles carry it, uh, and so we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it's, uh, yeah, you'll find it in the Apocryphal books, the Apocrypha books, and uh, uh, so it'll be, uh, I think this is an interesting topic. Uh, especially when the criticism compares her to someone else that's in some of the biblical text. So we'll get to that in a second. I just want to say that uh, um, I'm a little off-center tonight. Um, I had an old friend of mine died. He died either today or yesterday. I don't know all the details. I just saw a bunch of people from the old festival days were posting about the death of this, this man. And uh, he was one of my old uh, Royal Guard compatriots and a friend. His name was Mark Soderberg. And um, uh, much younger than me in my perception of the world, uh, he was younger than I. Maybe I'm just remembering being younger. Uh, he was kind of a, he, he was a bit of a, uh, he was a good actor, a good street entertainer. He was a great sword fighter. Uh, kind of gruff. He had that kind of, <laughs> you know. Uh, drinking and smoking kind of gruffness. Um, he was a leader in the group. And um, he, uh, he and I were friends, but he was one of those friends that uh, I dropped out of doing festival in 2005, went back for a year. I've only encountered him a couple of times over the years, uh, but pretty much not a close friend, not a close buddy, um, somebody that used to be a good friend when we were doing festival. And you know how those things go. It's like saying, you know, I was part of this company 20 years ago, and this guy was a good friend of mine, and I haven't seen him in 15 years, but uh, you feel the pang when they pass. Now, I, I don't have any details. We'll probably know by tomorrow. Dave is going to work with me tomorrow to do a little tribute to him. And we're going to maybe see if we can get a bunch of our festival friends to call into the show and give their stories of Mark. I think if you are a regular listener, this is something that's going to be good for you, too. Even if you don't know these people and don't know the person who passed, I believe it's going to be something that gives you uh, some insights from other people on this situation because I look at it and the first question that comes to my mind is, why am I still alive? And I have friends out there that are younger than me that have passed. Um, we've had a lot of that over the years. Uh, even in my, my 40s, uh, when I was leaving festival, uh, we had people pass away. And uh, so we've seen more and more of it. And of course, the older I get, the more I see that. And so, um, I asked myself today, and I, I did a little soul searching, and I found that, um, am I sad, I asked myself, I, I, I wasn't close enough to Mark over the years to be sad. The memory makes me sad, because we hung out together out there for six or seven years. Then there's the... Uh, uh, the side of this equation that had me asking, is this, uh, why am I here? Why am I still here? What is it that uh, took him from his family and leaves me with mine? And uh, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody a little bit today online. It wasn't an argument, which was nice. Somebody who's argued with me in the past. And... Uh, the thing about the immigration thing and 
and uh, Martha's Vineyard came up kind of sideways. People were saying, well, Jesus wasn't Jesus somebody who helped everybody and, you know, and, and uh, because this was his mission. And that was kind of her original post. And I said, well, no. Um, Jesus didn't help everybody. Um, he tried to do things. He, I think there was a purpose underneath the things that he did. He didn't come to this earth just to heal people and have a ministry. He came to this earth for a purpose, according to the scripture. And so I had mentioned that, uh, well, I think uh, uh, there are about 12 instances that I know of in the Gospels where Jesus turned away people or got somewhere and saw the crowds were enormous and said, eh, don't get out of the boat. Let's just cast back off. Um, you know, there are places at times where he turned, he saw the crowds were enormous and he turned around and they went up the mountain so they could have a little respite. And he just needed something to eat sometimes. And uh, there were times where the crowds overwhelmed him and he said, you know, we're going to call it for today. <laughs> This is a little too much. And uh, this person said, I find that highly unlikely. I said, well, just look it up. You can read these stories and make up your own mind. And, um, and then uh, somebody slipped in there something about, well, uh, Jesus, uh, there was something about, uh, some sideways comment about being made that uh, uh, religious Christians now wouldn't help anybody, especially if your skin is brown. And I could have really launched into somebody over that. I said, well, but all I said was, well, you do know, Jesus was one of those brown-skinned folk. I saw somebody else in a totally different post today. Post a, a white painting of Jesus and said, Jesus was white. And he's somebody who's respected in the paranormal UFO fields as a good researcher. And... Um, I even said something to him. I mentioned the Fayum paintings. Remember I showed those on here before? Those, all those little portraits of the Jewish community, the Judean community in the first century that were living in Egypt. And uh, they did casket paintings of them. Very real life, uh, almost photorealistic, but slightly stylized. But they all had that lightly browner skin, uh, they all seemed to have black, curly hair. Um, nobody had long, straight hair. Um, some were bearded, some were clean-shaven, and so on. So I said, you know, uh, I said, not that it matters for anybody. I said, but if you're going to have a discussion about brown-skinned people, uh, remember Jesus was a brown-skinned person. He was a first-century Judean um, that... Uh, um, was a Semitic Jew um, that could name his tribe in Israel, whose mother, it was said by their further writings, was a descendant of the Davidic king line. And so you look at all that stuff and you say, well, the guy was, the guy was a Semite. He wasn't, uh, as this other person had said, he postulated that, well, there were a lot of Greeks in the area in that time too. Greeks and Romans and so on. And I said, well, remember, the, the, the Jews were somebody that believed they were a chosen people and they were to keep as pure as possible. That doesn't mean there weren't. It wasn't a little intermixing, but uh, there you go. So, um, let's see. I'm seeing some things over in the uh, chat room. Um, Leslie said, I, I also believe that our souls live many lives on this earth. I think you're right. Um, spiritual life is eternal. Um, everybody's saying you're not alone, Matthew. I missed something in there. I'll look it up. I'll, I'll get to it. Um, Yehudi Jew in English as I didn't exist back then. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, the name Jesus is a Hellenized version of the name Joshua. So just so you know. So Jesus was named Joshua. So uh, um, there you go. There you have it. Well, that's, that's the, the little trail I'm on. 
I feel a little haze over my my brain tonight. Not that I'm not thinking well. I just feel a little like a little heavy, and I think it's not because I'm grieving for my friend who died. Um, like I say, I'd, I'd gotten over 15 years to not know him very well anymore. But I think it hails back to the memory, and it hails back to the uh, um, knowing somebody has passed that I was close to once that's younger than I am. And uh, uh, it does make you ask the questions, why am I the one that's here alive still? Must be something for me to do. Or, as my female friend was mentioning in some of her posts today, um, something about, uh, well, I would think Jesus would heal them all because that's what Jesus did, and why wouldn't he? Why would he let some child die of cancer? Which, of course, opens a whole can of worms for another question that people ask, not knowing what the answers are or caring to know what the answer to that might be, but asking it because they are frustrated by death and war and the death and loss of loved ones. Well, you know, I don't think God makes that happen. I don't think he does not heal people, but I do think that God created a universe that is natural, and there are natural laws. And I do believe when our friends die, maybe you can intercede and ask God for healing. Ask God. I, I know people that have done that, and they attribute that to God stepping in. But what makes God step in in some cases and not in others is what people want to know. So I tend to be a believer in the natural order of things. That <clears throat> when you contract cancer, can God heal that? Sure. But how do you contract it? You contract it because it's a natural thing that happens to humans. Humans have strokes. Humans get hit by buses. Humans get murdered. Things like that happen, and it happens to young people, and it happens to old people. So uh, those things happen to us. So I'm left with that little bit of a, a haze tonight that says uh, somebody that was a friend of mine a long time ago died. And uh, I'm still not sure of what happened, why he died. I don't believe he was much out of his late 40s, maybe into his mid-50s at the latest, I would think. He wasn't as old as I am. So uh, it's an interesting um, question to ask yourself. Ask yourself that right now in this moment. Why am I here? Why am I not dead? Why have I not contracted some disease or some uh, um, uh, cancerous eating uh, virus or disease that, uh, um, that has killed me yet? Why am I still here? What do I have to do? And this is where I talk about 20 years from now, you'll regret more of the things you didn't do than the things you did do because you never know what a day will bring. So um, think about that. Tomorrow night, Uncle Dave and I are going to put out there to our fest community that they can call into the show and talk about Mark and perhaps about some of the other people that have passed. And I think it would be a very good thing for us all to talk about these things. So we'll see who shows up, who has a desire to show up, and so on. Politics has divided and riddled, divided, and destroyed a lot of things out at our old festival. Uh, sad to say. And so uh, there are some people that absolutely hate me from out there because of my political stance on things. Uh, most of those are people that I didn't know very well. Anyway, that weren't even born yet when I was out there. Uh, then you've got the uh, other side of that, that I've got friends who might disagree with me but don't care because we're friends first. And uh, then you got those who are, you know, old friends, and they'll always be your old friends, like Dave is to me. 
And I talked to Dave more than anybody else, Uncle Dave from festival. So tomorrow night, I want you to be here. I want you to participate in tomorrow night. And we'll see how this all goes. So um, let's see if we can get some good conversation tomorrow night uh, from fresh wounds of people that were friends of this man who died. Um, so again, in, in memorial, his name was Mark Soderberg, uh, former royal guard with me out at the festival. Um, he left a couple of years before I did. He had things... So he had to leave festival for a reason. And uh, uh, just had other things to do, other things going on. And so uh, we'll see how it all goes tomorrow night. Tonight... We're talking about a young woman by the name of Judith. And the title I chose, just because it popped into my head, maybe if you saw the title, maybe the same thing hit your mind. Uh, remember the old song, Alice, who the F or hell is Alice? Um, I don't remember who sings it now off the top of my head. But uh, that came into my mind. Judith, who the hell is Judith? <laughs> she was a biblical character. And, uh, uh, but not in all Bibles. She was not admitted into the canon of Scripture. And I was going to take some time and read the Scripture about her uh, to give you an idea of who she was. But uh, um, it was during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and one of his general, and, or one of the generals of his vassal states, was Holofernes, uh, an Assyrian general. And uh, he's taken down by a woman named Judith. And she was an heroic woman in Jewish literature. But where they have a little problems is deciding, uh, was Judith a part of literature or was she a, was she a real-life character? And in chapter 7 of the book of Judith, the scriptural book, it starts, and I was going to read through these chapters just for fun to, to tease us with this. I'll just read a couple of verses out of this. It says, The following day, Holofernes ordered his whole army and all the troops who had come to join him to break camp and move against Bethulia. That's a, a city in, uh, in uh, Israel. Seize the passes into the hills and make war on the Israelites. And that same day, all their fighting men went into action and so on. And it carries through. Then in uh, chapter 8, Now in those days, Judith, daughter of Merari, son of Ox, listen to this genealogy, son of Joseph, son of Oziel, son of Elka, son of Ananias, son of Gideon, son of Raphain, son of Ahitub, son of Elijah, son of Hilkiah, Son of Eliab, son of Nathaniel, son of Salmiel, son of Sarasadai, son of Simeon, son of Israel, heard this. Her husband Manasseh, of her own tribe and clan, had died at the time of barely harvest. While he was supervising those who bound the sheaves in the field, he was overcome by the heat, and he collapsed on his bed and died in Bethulia his native city. He was buried with his ancestors in the field between Dothan and Belamon. Now, archaeologically or historically speaking, when you have this much detail in an account that's supposed to be an historical account, it generally is leading you to accept the fact that it's an historical story. Judith was living as a widow in her home for three years and four months, and she set up a tent for herself on the roof of her house put sackcloth about her waist, and wore widow's clothing. She fasted all the days of her widowhood, except Sabbath, Sabbath Eve and Sabbaths, New Moon Eves and New Moons, feast days and holidays of the house of Israel. She was beautiful in appearance and very lovely to behold. Her husband Manasseh had left her gold and silver, male and female servants, livestock, and fields which she was maintaining. Not one had a bad word to say about her, for she feared God greatly. And then she goes into, she hears the harsh words of Holofernes, 
and uh, the general of, uh, of uh, the Assyrians. And as this story goes on in this scriptural passage, she ends up uh, uh, dressing up in all her finery, taking off the widow's garbs, and uh, all her friends are like, whoa, what are you dressed up for? You look stunning. And so apparently, according to this book, um, Judith was an incredibly gorgeous, stunning woman. Somebody that your eyes would behold her and, and it would take your breath away is what I get from the descriptions. And uh, she goes in and uh, with her beauty um, ends up seducing uh, this general, Holofernes. And she did not have sex with him, but she led him on for three days, all for one purpose, so she could get him drunk and find the opportunity to take his head, which she did. And she snuck the head out with her hand servant and uh, out of the Assyrian camp because they'd been coming and going. They were friends of Holofernes now. And uh, she got out. She went back to the gates of Bethuliel, her city, and they rejoiced at the death of this king, and they hung his head on the wall, facing out from the city gate. And it had the desired effect. So um, this is the story of her. And I wanted to go through some really cool things about this woman. Now, she gets, there is some um, criticism out there, textual criticism, that this is an apologetic account of a fictional character who was made to look an awful lot like Deborah or like a J.L., if you remember JL, um, not Superman's dad, um, but JL, uh, probably pronounced Hiel, uh, she was the one who drove the tent peg spike into the head of uh, the king uh, of, I don't know who they were fighting now, probably the Assyrians again. And, uh, and she uh, nailed him to the ground with his head. And uh, so they're saying that this was an account that was similar to that. It was like an apologetic account. But there's enough information out there that says uh, um, that this is a, a remarkable, heroic woman. And uh, the book of Judith is considered canonical by Roman Catholics. So you'll find it in the Roman Catholic Bible. It's apocrypha literature by Protestants. It's non-canon by Jews, and it tells the story of the ignominious defeat of the Assyrians, an army bent on world domination by the hand of a Hebrew woman. You'll find this in uh, Judith 13, verse 14. And indeed, her beheading of, the, of Holofernes, uh, the invading Assyrian general, in his own tent with his own sword and surrounded by his own heretofore victorious army out in the camp all around his tent, marks her as a political savior in Israel, kind of on the same par with King David in his early days. So I want you to consider these characteristics of Judith. One, she commands, plans, and leads. She enters the book bearing her name when the Assyrians have cut off the water supply. And uh, um, the town at the entrance, Bethulia, is the town at the entrance of the narrow corridor that leads to Jerusalem. And the siege lasted 34 days, and it made the people fractious, thirsty, bitter. And Uzziah, the town's other magistrates, succumbed the town's people's demands and they say they will surrender to the Assyrians in five days. So unless the Lord takes pity. And so upon hearing this, Judith, instead of going to Bethulia's leaders, summons them to her home, chiding them. Now remember, she's a wealthy woman. She chides them for testing God. She declares that she has a plan to save Bethulia, Jerusalem, the temple, and the people. So declining to reveal it, 
she nonetheless proclaims her deed will go down through all generations of our descendants. And not only do the leaders listen without interruption, they also acclaim her for her wisdom. And like all men in this tale, they do her bidding. And as she demands that the gates be opened, and that she and her maid be let out of the city, which they do. Two, Judith is verbose, meaning she's really talkative. Other women wordsmiths in the biblical text are Lady Wisdom and Proverbs, Abigail and First Samuel, Deborah and Judges 5, and the Beloved in the Song of Solomon. And so Judith tops them all with two long statements that she makes, first to Uzziah and the other Bethulian magistrates, and the second to Holofernes and the Assyrian forces crowding around to gaze at her beautiful face and figure. Uh, she prays three times, once before her adventure starts, then for strength to behead Holofernes, and finally in a public song at the national celebration at the end of the book, honoring her deed and the slaughter of of the Assyrians. And uh, I want you to see, just listen to one of these verbose statements she makes uh, to the magistrates. It's Judith 8, uh, verses 11 through 27, right here. goes like this. When they came, the magistrates and Uzziah, she said to them, Listen to me, you rulers of the people of Bethulia. What you said to the people today is not right. You pronounced this oath made between God and yourselves and promised to hand over the city to our enemies unless a certain, at a certain time the Lord comes to our aid. You are, who are you to put God to the test today, setting yourselves in the place of God in human affairs? And now it's the Lord Almighty you're putting to the test, but you will never understand anything. You cannot plumb the depths of the human heart or grasp the workings of the human mind. How then can you fathom God who has made all these things or discern his mind or understand his path? No, my brothers, do not anger the Lord our God. For if he does not plan to come to our aid within five days, he has it equally within his power to protect us at such time as he pleases or to destroy us in the sight of our enemies. Do not impose conditions on the plans of the Lord our God. Don't we do that an awful lot? We throw out the fleece to God. I'm going to put a condition. Lord, I'll serve you if you do this, this, and that. Save my dying baby, and I'll serve you forever. Kind of thing. God is not like a human, she goes on, being moved by threats, nor like a mortal to be cajoled. So while we wait for the salvation that comes from him, let us call upon him to help us, and he will hear our cry if it pleases him. For there has not risen among us in recent generations, nor does there exist today any tribe or clan or district or city of ours that worship gods made by hands, as happened in former days." It was for such conduct that our ancestors were handed over to the sword and to pillage and fell with great destruction before our enemies. But since we acknowledge no other God but the Lord, we hope that he will not disdain us or any of our people. She goes on. If we're taken, then all Judea will fall. Our sanctuary will be plundered and God will demand an account from us for their profanation, for the slaughter of our kindred, for the taking of exiles from the land, and for the devastation of our inheritance, he will hold us responsible among the nations. Wherever we are enslaved, we will be a scandal and a reproach to the eyes of our masters. Our servitude will not work to our advantage, but the Lord our God will turn it to disgrace. Therefore, my brothers... Let us set an example for our kindred. Their lives depend on us, and the defense of the sanctuary of the temple and the altar rests with us. Besides all this, 
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God for putting us to the test as he did our ancestors. Recall how he dealt with Abraham and how he tested Isaac and all that happened to Jacob in Syria and Mesopotamia while he was tending the flocks of Laban, his mother's brother. He has not tested us with fire as he did them to try their hearts, nor is he taking vengeance on us, but the Lord chastises those who are close to him in order to admonish them. It says, Then Uzziah said to her, All that you have said, you have spoken truthfully, and no one can deny your words, and so on. The story goes. So, uh, um, I hope that this is interesting to people. I see our numbers have dropped just in who's viewing in the chat room right now. I hope that's just people coming and going uh, and not people not liking the topic. So <clears throat> this is where this story goes, at least in her book. And uh, so she was a very verbose person, as you can tell. It's one of the longest speeches in ancient uh, Old Testament uh, writings from a woman. Three, she strategizes. Uh, she dressed in a way to entice the eyes of all men who might see her, says Judith 10, verse 4. Judith and her maid set forth at night down the valley intending to be captured. They were stopped by an Assyrian border patrol and escorted by 100 men directly to Holofernes. She readily spins a tall tale that contains just enough fact to be believed. And claiming to have uh, direct access to, access to God, she promises to guide Holofernes and his whole army through the hill country to Jerusalem without the loss of life or so much as a dog growling at them. Her words delight the general and his attendants. So calling her beautiful and eloquent, he welcomes her to the camp and grants her request to travel through the camp at night to bathe at a spring and pray, uh, and pray. Thus, this unprotected and unexpected guest in the Assyrian camp dangles herself alluringly as bait and waits for three days for a chance to strike and save Israel. Verse 4. Now, the reason I'm going through this is because she's a remarkable woman. I'm not preaching a sermon. I want you to see what a remarkable person this woman is and that it came out of Scripture. For those who say the Scripture only denigrates women, this honors her very highly. So throughout the whole book of Judith, it seems that Judith merely smiles and men melt and collapse. Uh, wisely, it's like when I met my wife, Rainey, I got to tell you. She looked at me with those eyes and I was a goner. <laughs> so wisely appealing to their senses of sight and smell, Judith mesmerizes these men. Her weapons of warfare are sensual and material. She dresses carefully following the success of her ruse and assassination plan, and it all depends upon her ability to entice Holofernes. For her adventure, she removes her sackcloth, which is a... Uh, a cloth and a garment put on for mourning, and her widow's dress. She bathes and richly perfumes herself. There's nothing better, men, men you'll agree with me, nothing better than a sweet-smelling woman. <laughs> That's a great smell to the nostrils. So uh, she bathes herself and richly perfumes herself, fixes her hair, selects a festival dress, dons a tiara as her battle garbs finishing touch, and she accessorizes her outfit with rings, with bracelets, anklets, earrings, other jewelry, and attractive sandals. <clears throat> and the intimate seduction banquet scene, set in Holofernes tent, which had several rooms, a huge tent, Judith simply reclines on a lambskin, nibbles her food brought from Bethulia, and flatters the general by telling him, Today is the greatest day of my whole life. And she's laying on a lambskin in his tent, nibbling her food. She presents such a pretty picture that gullible Holofernes, beset with lust, 
drinks himself into senseless, fatal oblivion. And uh, the fifth point here is that Judith acts for the common good. Judith murders Holofernes, the enemy of Israel, the one laying siege to their city, a world-class bully who slaughtered his way through Put, Lud, and the lands of the Rassites, uh, of the Rassites, uh, the Ishmaelites, the walled towns along Wadi Abron and Silsicia. He set fire to the tents of the Midianites and the fields of Damascus. This is all a matter of history. And so alone with him, late at night in his tent, Judith beheads him with two strokes to the neck from his own famous sword, praying beforehand, of course. Um, she rolls his corpse to the floor. She yanks down a jeweled canopy from above his bed. She walks out of the tent and hands his head to her waiting maid, who puts it in the food sack. And together the women stroll through the Assyrian lines as they have every other night they'd been there, allegedly to pray and bathe. And you know the soldiers are all like, like, how you doing? Huh? Going to take a bath again, eh? And she's a, a guest of hollow fernies. So uh, this time she skipped the prayer in the bath routine, and they head straight up the mountain to Bethulia's, ga- Bethulia's gates. And there Judith starts shouting. The gates open and she shares her story. And she carefully proclaims in front of all that she's not been defiled by Holofernes because the Lord protected her. Her face tricked Holofernes and brought his downfall. So displaying his head and no doubt unraveling the jeweled canopy, her story is believable. Uzziah proclaims Judith is blessed by the Most High God above all other women on earth. And this verse is an echo of Deborah's vindication of Jael's similar uh, situation, hands-on murder of Sisera. Uh, uh, It's all pivotal Roman Catholic theology, for it's also spoken of Mary. Um, So... Same things were said of Mary that were said of Judith. So now, here you've got this remarkable woman who performs this historic act, and she, uh, and you can see the kind of person she is. Um, the book of Judith is this truly remarkable, presents us this truly remarkable heroine, Judith. She's introduced as a devout, shapely, beautiful, and wealthy widow. She exhibits characteristics showing her the equal of Israel's finest warriors. Uh, She has tactics. Uh, Indeed, her beheading of Holofernes and the invading Assyrian general in his own tent with his own sword and surrounded by his own heretofore victorious army, no less. This marks her as a political savior in Israel, as I said earlier, on a par with David. And there's a few more points that we may not get to them all, but Judith displays extraordinary courage. This is point number six. Anticipating the gruesome outcome of the 34-day Assyrian siege against Bethulia, uh, Judith describes it this way. This is what she says. The slaughter of our kindred and the captivity of the land and the desolation of our inheritance. That was something we read in Judith 8. And if the little town at the gateway to Jerusalem falls, Jerusalem is going to be exposed and the sanctuary looted. But unlike the Bethulian magistrates who cry to the Lord for rain and hope for deliverance from the Assyrians, Judith does something very different. She acts She moves. And correcting their theology, she proclaims the siege is a test from God on them, like the one he put Abraham and Isaac in through. through, um, And even thanks God for it. So everybody knows that the Bethulian men, while brave, present no match 
for the Assyrians 170,000 strong infantry and 12,000 cavalry. And Judith, unarmed, alone, but for her accompanying maid, steps forward. Point seven, Judith and her maid. A silent, anonymous maid shadows Judith throughout her adventure and shares equally in it. Serving as an inclusion, the maid summons the the magistrates to Judith's home, receives emancipation just before Judith dies at age 105. The maid, it seems, also is beautiful, for the awestruck Assyrians marvel. Who can despise these people when they have women like these among them? And so the maid cares for the physical needs of her mistress, her food, her clothing, and acts as chaperone and attendant. Necessary qualifications adding to the mystique and the credibility of this great lady claiming she flees in distress from her doomed countrymen to the Assyrians because the Hebrews are about to be devoured, she tells Halofernes. And so the text hints at a deep bond between Judith and her maid and the deep faith that they share with one another. And both are members of the covenant community. And the maid observes Judith's lifestyle of prayer and fasting. And although the text doesn't indicate that the maid knew Judith's complete plan or was asked to accompany her, I think that Judith's character indicates that she would not order someone to come with her on what could be a death mission. I believe she asked her maid, and the maid, meeting her eyes and with her head held high, nodded, Yeah, you bet your ass I'm coming along. And I believe they prayed together. And in modern terms, both were enemy agents that were bent on the destruction of Israel's foe. And both are heroines in this book. This is the real reason I wanted to present this story tonight. It is a story of, of uh, in this day and age uh, that we live in now, a great story to be heralded high and vaunted. It's a story of female heroism, uh, especially in a book that we seem to think is all patriarchal. So there's a couple of more points here. There's Judith's heritage, Judith's theology, and these are the, and uh, then her as a prophetess, and Judith and her countrymen. And that's how, uh, that's all this information that I have left here. And we've only got about four minutes left. So maybe we'll hit some of this in the after show. But her heritage, she's introduced with a lineage virtually unparalleled in the biblical text. I read that genealogy that goes all the way back. Uh, The descendant of Simeon. Her genealogy includes 16 progenitors. Doesn't even make it back to Simeon. The genealogy, a significant textual marker, establishes her as a formidable literary character. And in, an in, uh, and in a very interesting psychological insight, her prayer for help with her plan to save Israel and assassinate Holofernes, the besieging of uh, Assyrian general, begins with a remembrance of Dinah's shame from Genesis 34.2. Judith, by her upcoming valor and good deed, expresses determination to erase this early but still remember defamation. Her covenant heritage combines prayer and action. She calls on God to break the world-renowned pride of the Assyrians by the hand of a woman. Um, Judas theology. She ranks along with Deborah or Deborah. If you look at Deborah, one of the judges in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, Judges 5, she's the wife of Manoah, Uh, Hannah, Naomi, Abigail. These are all, she mirrors their theologies in the Old Testament in the sense that they all comment on God's character and actions. However, in terms of verbosity, she exceeds them all, as we already covered. She credits God for the victory over the Assyrians 
and uh, for the killing of Holofernes. And her theology includes possession, shows her leadership. She sings of my territory, my young men, my infants, my children, my maidens. That's what she sings of in her final song at the end of the book of Judith. Her song containing many distinctively feminine insights details her preparation for war, how she anointed her face with perfume, fixed her hair, and so on. She uh, is lauded as a prophetess. And although the text does not call her by the, uh, the appositive prophetess, her words and actions raise the possibility that she indeed was a prophet or a prophetess in the biblical terminology. Uh, the first indication is when she asserts to Uzziah and the Bethulian magistrates that I am about to do something that will go down through all generations of our descendants. Now, she was either very confident or uh, uh, she was a prophet. Um, the final point here about her is Judith and her countrymen. We've got one minute left. Uh, she relates well to the other women. They express no hint of jealousy toward her beauty, her wealth, her piety, and her accomplishments. Indeed, they arguably identify with her. She inspires them. They sing her praises and dance in her honor. And Judith and the women crown themselves with garlands. Judith then leads the women first, with the men following, in a celebratory victory dance, just as Miriam, the prophetess, led the women after the victory at the Sea of Reeds during the Exodus. In both stories, a mighty foe bent on destruction of God's covenant people falls. A heroine knows no greater honor. And we squeezed it in. I had to omit some things, but we squeezed it in. Folks, thanks for listening to this and all my radio listeners. Guess what? We're at the end of the show, and we're going to let you guys go. So thank you for being here. We'll see you again tomorrow night. You can stick around over in the YouTube channel for the after show, The Captain's Cabin. And it's talk like a pirate day, so get your pirate voice on. In the meantime, live long and prosper. Join us every weeknight at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. The Intrepid Radio Program, a Scotty Roberts Productions broadcast.